read together from uh, the Gospel of John and chapter 20. We've got two short readings this morning. Firstly, from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, and reading from verse 10. John 20, verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Women, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, For I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news I have seen the Lord. And she told them, that he had said these things to her. Amen. We turn now to the book of Acts, chapter 1. And verse 6. Acts 1, verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Amen. Baptists have uh, historically viewed the church calendar with great suspicion. Uh, In recent years, it's fair to say that that stance has softened, and I think probably all of us have grown up uh, quite comfortable in celebrating Christmas and Easter, at least. These are the two exceptions that Baptists, I think, uh, today almost universally will accept uh, celebrating Christmas and celebrating Easter. Christmas brings good things into our lives, doesn't it? It brings time off work or time off our our place of study. We are able to spend time resting, to spend time with family, to spend time with friends. But it also gives us space to take time to remember and to rejoice in the wonder of the incarnation and the wonder of God with us. The wonder of the doctrine of the incarnation. And the second exception is Easter. Again, it brings good things, time off work, uh, time with friends and family, chocolate, mainly chocolate, I have to say. And of course, it also gives us the time and the space to remember and to rejoice in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, to remind ourselves of how He humbled Himself to die on a cross for our guilt, for our sin, for our shame. But not only that, that that's not the end of the story. That Jesus was raised from death triumphant, victorious. We are not a people who gather to commemorate the life and death of a great moral teacher who has left us great moral teaching to follow in the hope that we might please God. No. We don't gather to commemorate, we gather to celebrate. Not the life of a good man who lived and died a long time ago. We gather to celebrate the life of the man who is God, who died and then lived, and who shares this victory over death with all who give their lives to Him. Easter gives us the opportunity to celebrate that. Of course, we celebrate that every Lord's Day, don't we? But it also opens up other opportunities for evangelism, other opportunities to have these discussions with friends and family members and colleagues. And so we have 
certainly in, in, in recent years, embraced the celebration of Christmas and Easter. And I think that's no bad thing. Actually, I think we should incorporate one more special season into our church life. We should import one more thing, I think, from the church calendar. And that is Ascension Sunday, which is today. Ascension Sunday. I think we are apt to forget the importance of the ascension of Christ Jesus. Does it matter? And is it good? So I'm going to seek to spend two weeks reflecting on the ascension and trying to answer those questions. Does the ascension of Christ Jesus matter? And is the ascension of Christ Jesus good? I've preached on this before. I think just in one week rather than in two weeks. Uh, so some of what I say may well sound familiar, but that's no bad thing. And let me start by saying very clearly that the Bible speaks about the ascension of Jesus as if it's a very important thing, as if it matters. The temptation for us is just to sort of tag it on as a, an addendum to the resurrection, isn't it? Uh, Michael Horton says, we typically treat the ascension as little more than a dazzling exclamation point for the resurrection rather than as a new event in its own right. But it matters that Jesus has not been left wandering the earth. It matters that he has been raised to heaven. It matters that he is seated at the Father's right hand. It is important and it is good. Jesus speaks of his ascension as a good thing, and not just as a good thing for himself. It's not the case that he just says, it's good that I'm going to eventually get out of this world. I've had a terrible time. I've been mistreated, abused, abandoned, betrayed. I've had enough. I can't wait to get back to my Father in heaven. I can't wait to get back to that place where the angels sing my praise, that place of beauty and glory and majesty. Can't wait to leave this world behind. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that the ascension is good for his followers, for his disciples, for us who seek to follow Jesus. He says to his followers, it is for your good that I am going away. That seems like a strange thing to say, doesn't it? How can it be good that Jesus would leave his followers? Or think about Mary Magdalene. Do you remember how many demons she had before she met Jesus? She had seven demons and seven in Scripture, symbolizing completeness. So when we say that seven is the perfect number, you'll have heard that, I'm sure. It's perfect in the sense of completeness. So it's as if Mary is completely oppressed by these demons. It's like darkness is completely confident 
of its hold on Mary. Mary is going nowhere as far as darkness and the kingdom of the darkness is concerned. And then she meets Jesus and the demons flee. Darkness always gives way to light, doesn't it? And that's what happens as Mary meets Jesus. Darkness gives way to light and death gives way to life. These demons flee, the darkness flees, and suddenly Mary finds herself at the feet of Jesus with this whole new life to live. Life free from the things which have uh, bound her up and held her down. Life free to live a life which honors God and brings joy to her. How does she feel? Well, we can only imagine, some of us perhaps, can imagine. All of us who are Christians have some understanding of what it's like to live before and after. Even those who were brought up in the church family will be able to look back at a time where it didn't really make full sense to us. And then a period or a moment perhaps where everything fell into place and that joy we first experienced in Jesus. So from that moment, the love that Mary has for her Lord is crystal clear for all to see. She actually stands above and apart from the, the rest of the disciples as far as I can see in Scripture. There she is at the cross when the others have abandoned him. There she is at the tomb just to be with the body in the hope that tending to the, the body of her master might offer her some small crumb of comfort. And even when he's not there and the others leave, she cannot bring herself just to walk away. Even when all seems lost, and then she meets him. She's not expecting to meet him. It takes her a moment. It takes her to, to hear the voice of her Lord before she recognizes who it is that stands before her. But how does she feel as she sees him? She has gone in the hope that she might see the body of Jesus and now the man himself stands before her and speaks her name. How does she feel in that moment? Well, I'm not sure any of us could grasp how she felt in that moment. Not really, not fully. But I think I have had a small taste at how that moment must have felt for me. As a wee boy playing in a park in Paisley, Parshaw Park. And in those days, I had more energy than I was able to use, which is hard for me to believe now. I must have been like Grace. I feel sometimes like phoning up my mum and saying, I had no idea what I did to you, mum. I'm so sorry. I must have been like Grace, who just has all this energy from the moment she wakes up first thing in the morning to the moment she 
eventually goes down to bed at night. I, I say often, I, I wish I could just plug into her. She's got too much energy and I've got not enough. If I could just charge myself up for 10 minutes, then I would be fine. Well, that's what I used to be like back in those days. I just used to run for the sake of running. And I asked my mum if I could run to the next hill. And in my mind, I ran to the next hill, but my mum tells me I didn't run to the next hill. I run, ran to the next hill and then kept going. And I turned around and didn't see my mum anymore. And ran up the hill and didn't see my mum anymore. And somehow, in this moment of prolonged panic, we both ran where we thought the other one was, and we somehow managed to miss each other. I don't know how long we were apart, probably not that long, maybe five minutes or so, but it was a terrifying experience for me and for my mum. And I remember quite vividly the moment that I saw her again. I remember the relief. I remember the reunion, which was very sweet. And I remember the rebuke, which was very strong. I love you. Don't ever do that to me again. Stay by my side. How does Mary feel as she meets with Jesus? Maybe like that, multiplied tenfold. All she wanted was to find the body. And now she has found the man himself, very much alive, speaking her name. I can't fully grasp how she felt, but it must have been good. What does she want to do in that moment? To hug him, to hold him, and to tell him never to go away again. That's what she must have wanted, to cling, to keep, to hold it's understandable, but Jesus says in verse 17, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The King James Version says, don't touch me. But I think the NIV captures what is actually going on here. It's not that Mary's not allowed to touch Jesus. Just a wee bit later, Jesus invites Thomas to touch him. It's not that Mary can't touch him, it's that Mary can't hold on to him. The ESV says, don't cling to me, Mary. That's what's going on here. Don't cling on to me, Mary, because I have to go again. Don't get too used to this. That wouldn't have seemed like good news to Mary, that's for sure. So what is going on? Is it that his short-term mission is over and he is keen to get back to the comfort of heaven? Now that he has ascended on high, does he stand aloof, distant and different to the plight of his people down here on earth? Well, the Bible is clear, Jesus is clear that his living, uh, his leaving rather, was and is good news for his followers. It won't lead to less of Jesus, but to more of Jesus. It's not a cause for sorrow, it's a cause for joy. Why is this good news? Well, this week, two reasons, and next week, three reasons. 
this week. Firstly, this is good news. The ascension is good news for us, his people, because Jesus is vindicated. Jesus is vindicated. Rome rejects Jesus. That is wholly unsurprising. Rome is a pagan empire. Jesus is a Jewish man. Uh, Rome has its own lord, Caesar. The people of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, accept only Jesus as Lord. So it's no surprise to us that Rome rejects Jesus. But it's not just Rome. Jesus' own people reject Jesus. Actually, the only reason that Rome crucifies Jesus is because the Jewish people persuade Rome to crucify Jesus. The vast majority of Jesus' own people reject him. And even from within the twelve, this select band of brothers, there is betrayal and rejection and desertion. The world's verdict on Christ was clear. But the ascension reminds us that it's God's verdict which matters most. And God's voice speaks clearly in the ascension to show us that he approves of Jesus. God the Father lifts Jesus to the place of highest honor. Remember, if you're having a meal in the society of the day, and that's very important in the culture of the day to, to have and to host meals, you know that if you are seated at the right hand of the host, then you're in the place of highest honor. God raises Christ from death, but not only that, he lifts him up and takes him to his side and, and seats him in the place of highest honor. Jesus is vindicated, just as, you know, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at his, his baptism, God the Father publicly approves of his Son. This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Well, here at the end of Jesus' ministry, having completed his mission, having been able to say on the cross, Tetelestai, it is finished. Mission accomplished, job done. God the Father raises him from death and raises him to the place of highest honor, gives him the name that is above every name. And so we can be utterly assured that even if the whole world rejects Jesus, God the Father approves of Jesus, applauds Jesus, celebrates the accomplishment of his Son with joy and pride. Jesus is vindicated, that's our first point. And secondly, related to that, the way of Jesus is vindicated. Remember the Philippians uh, 2 hymn that we 
We read at the start of the service, the Apostle Paul writes to the, the church in Philippi, and he wants the believers there to love each other. But he doesn't just say, love each other. He doesn't say, love each other, because it's self-evident that that is good. He says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why? Because that is the way of Jesus. And even if a life of love looks laughable in the eyes of the whole world, in the eyes of God, it's a glorious thing. And that's what matters. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, literally emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Jesus vindicated, and the way of Jesus vindicated. Jesus humbled himself. The world laughed. Heaven applauded. Jesus loved even unto death. The world mocked. But the Father loved and approved him. Jesus hung on the cross for our sins. He didn't put himself first. Isn't that the message of the world in which we live? Put yourself first. Trust in yourself. Believe yourself. Love yourself. Jesus didn't put himself first. He hung on the cross for our sins. The world says he is defeated, he is dead, he is irrelevant. God says he is alive, he is victorious, and he is of the utmost importance for all people. The way of Christ has been vindicated by God. God has shown us the way he would want his people to live their lives, the way he would want his people to live our lives, may I say. We are God's children. We are followers of Jesus. The way of Christ vindicated by God, and we must remind ourselves continually as Christians, as those who live as aliens and strangers in our own land, we must remind ourselves continually that it's God's verdict which matters most it's his voice that will be, that will be heard uh, through eternity. The way of Jesus is vindicated. God's verdict is clear. And that is the one that matters most. Even if the whole world gives a thumbs down, if God gives a thumbs up, what does it matter? Sometimes our lives will look foolish to the world. It will look foolish to love when we could justify hating. To tell the truth when it would be so easy to tell a lie. To be pure when those around us 
celebrate and rejoice and revel in impurity. God's verdict is clear. It is the way of Jesus that brings glory and joy to the heart of God and ultimately which brings true and lasting joy to us. So how is it going? Are you growing in Christ-likeness? And obviously any question I address to you, I address to me. Are we growing in Christ-likeness? For our joy and for the glory of God in our lives. Remember in your normal lives outside these four walls, outside this church building, to think of the ascension and to remember that as hard as it may be, God will be faithful to honor those who honor him. It must have been unspeakably hard for Jesus to stay true in the face of those temptations, in the face of the the, the, the clumsiness and the foolishness and the fickleness of his followers in the garden of Gethsemane. And as he carried his cross and hung on his cross, all the while knowing he could call down a legion of angels to lift him from that suffering and that pain which was so unjust. But he knew that God would be faithful to him in the end. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He is the one who was found faithful. And God, in the end, vindicated him and will vindicate us as we follow faithfully in the footsteps of our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing, Our eyes have seen the glory.